Hello, and welcome to Locutors of Trek, the podcast where we talk about the people, places, and things of Star Trek. So, replicate yourself a Romulan ale or your synthesis selection of choice and join us far beyond the stars. Locutors of Trek. Program initiated. Enter when ready. Hello there. Welcome back to Locutors of Trek. This is Dave. And I'm Davin. We are your Locutors for the evening. And our topic this week is biology. We're going to look at the people of Star Trek this time, more in terms of their morphology and their uh, their body schemes and how they differ from each other. We're really leaning into IDIC this week. Yeah, this is an episode I've been really looking forward to. Biology is what I deal with for a living as a uh, Boothby-type character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Particularly in its horticultural aspects, but... And microbiology uh, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So, I yeah. think this one's going to be a lot of fun. But first off, actually, I think we should uh, clarify a couple things from the last couple episodes. Sure. Some of you may have noticed that the Trouble with Trivia segment from last episode may have seemed a little out of place in our culture episode, as it seemed to be very transportation and ship-focused. Luckily for me. That is because Mr. Scott's Chronomatrix you know, isn't quite up to snuff. I mean, no offense to Mr. Scott, but let's, let's be real. He's a better trivia host than he is a space engineer. Well, yeah, and he traded that shifty Lesepian for it. So, you know, yeah. you get what you pay for, right? Exactly. So, yeah, his space-time transporter, very impressive, if it worked properly. Mm-hmm. Like I say, the chronomatrix was off. He came in a week late. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He got the right place, right place in space. That's true. That's true. But, uh, but you, know, you, know, you know, better than his last attempt, he ended up uh, six weeks ago in Colorado, which is definitely not where he intended. Oh, also, one other thing. Yeah. You know, that since we did that transportation episode, mm-hmm. there's been some very exciting work talked about in the news. The mm-hmm. work of a physicist named Eric Lentz, mm-hmm. who has described a, what he calls an entire class of warp drives under general relativity that do not make recourse to exotic materials or negative energy densities, huh. negative energies, in order to create a warp bubble. So warp drive just came about 10 light years closer than it was before, which is pretty exciting. 2160 or something? What, what is our... Uh, 2063. 20, 2063. Oh, geez. Yep. We're really running out of time. But 42 years and a couple of weeks. Cheers to that for sure. Indeed. We salute you. Salute. Jolandru. Kapla. <laughs> so. And also, the cap- Bolian captain, Dave, uh, oh, that's struggled. Right. That's right. Slightly. At I never really figured out what the name of it was. Was Captain Ricks captain of Ricks. the USS Thomas Paine. Nice. Died for liberty. It's a lovely, uh, lovely naming moment there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Bolians themselves have an interesting biology we may be able to touch on or later in the episode. But for now, uh, where shall we begin? Well, I guess we I do have a list in mind for this evening. Let's do it. This list will be top five. Okay. Characters 
groups or races okay unseen but talked about wow that you would like to see okay in star trek who shall begin uh, I think I began the last list, so you should take the, the okay. number five spot. Okay, my number, number one this time. Five, maybe my most obvious one. Maybe okay. have a little crossover here. Who knows? We'll see. And I don't think they've ever been seen. And that's the Iconians. Oh yeah, yeah. We hear about them all the time, and we return to them as a subject quite frequently. Yeah, we do. Kind of a weird galactic, which is interesting line. since we've never seen them that I know no. of. I'm no, pretty... and they they only show up really in terms of importance to plot in maybe two episodes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, where the Jem'Hadar found a gateway. Yeah, and then there's the gateway that the Enterprise found in, what, season one or season two. Yeah. Uh, Who knows if they're still out there? Like, what happened to the Iconians? Mm-hmm. Who knows? So, somebody stumbles upon a group of Iconians, they still have gateways, just mm-hmm. nobody knows where they have them. It would just be great to see what they look like, and also have some explanation on the mm-hmm. gateway technology. Because I don't think we and ever what get happened any to them. kind like, of the history of them could be so fascinating. Yeah, we don't ever get any visual suggestion of their appearance. Just Not demons that I know of, of air and darkness. Yeah, and then a sense that watch them not look like demons at all. <laughs> <laughs> just very cute, yeah. rabbit bunny yeah. looking creatures, little binaries. Look at the teeth on it. <laughs> I've soiled my armor. Uh Anyway, oh yeah, what a what a great great suggestion. Okay, my number five, the Iconians. Nice. I think there's lots nice. of good stories could be told there. Oh yeah. So my number five, mm-hmm. my number five uh, goes from the epic scale to the relatively minute. Uh-huh. I would love to see Felix. Wow, Felix, the uh, designer of one of our very good friends, creator of uh, Vic Fontaine. Well, that's very interesting. I think we found our first crossover. Can you join me? Felix is my number one choice. Oh, wow. I would love to see Felix. Oh, as man. Well. The man who invented Vic Fontaine. Indeed. And such a realistic holographic. Wow. He seems more real than the doctor. I mean, he's, he seems a virtuoso of hollow design mm-hmm. and i'd love to know his background i don't think we ever get any of that no he's just a buddy of Bashir's. we don't know if he's a starfleet buddy we don't know if he's a civilian yeah i guess we buddy. don't i just always assumed he was in starfleet but i i, I yeah it makes but sense i don't uh, think that's indicated at all no i don't think it's necessary at all no but yeah there's i mean spoil my number one so no oh. no big anticipation there but oh man well you got time to work at a new number one if you want to by the time we get to the end <laughs> okay well you know what um Maybe I'll just push it all down and come up with a new number four. All right. That? That's uh, I, I, <laughs> unprecedented here on Locuters or Trek. Amazing. Last minute list switch. But yeah, so yeah, just to get a more exciting number one. Felix right. was my number one, but we'll uh, just yeah. remove poor Felix and let him have a place on your list. Indeed, he'll fade back into the obscurity of the author it's as true. it becomes... But what other programs really? does he come up with for himself? Like, if that's the one he gives away, what yeah, other exactly. programs that he's dealing with? Yeah, yeah. And right. I want, I mean, you know, it, it makes me wonder things like, did Felix have a role in the development of the kind of holograms we see in the first season of Picard, for instance? Uh. Or could he have had a role in some of the development of the EMH programs? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah. maybe him and Zimmerman. That raises the frightening possibility he could have been played by Andy Dick. Uh, <laughs> is Andy Dick Felix? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? Now there... 
there is an obscure. That's an interesting time. twist, and we're just going to go with that. You know, the one yeah. great thing about this show is I think we're all just creating our collective headcanon together. Here. It's true. It's and, true. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll just say Andy Dick is Felix for now. Yeah, now we've seen him. Because <laughs> <laughs> he never does say what his creator's name was. Nope. Okay, so, geez, okay, so my new number four. Okay. I'm going to say Judith Sisko. Ooh. The sister of Benjamin Sisko and daughter of Joseph Sisko. We only hear about we, her. We only hear about Judith because she lives like in Minneapolis or somewhere. Oh, does she? Or okay. Up north or, or some or Oregon or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Minneapolis, Oregon, they're basically the They're same. basically the same thing as I'm sure our American listeners will back me up on. Oh, yeah, oh sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know our impeccable grasp of their geography. <laughs> I'm I'm trying here. <laughs> yeah, do we know what Judith does for a living? No, just that she's not allowed in the kitchen because she doesn't put enough cayenne pepper in the gumbo or, ah. the, or the jambalaya, one or the other. Either way, not enough cayenne pepper, and therefore Joseph says she should never be allowed in the kitchen. Oh, you, see, you know, that would be, you know, if you pick that up under the sort of like auspices of Picard, there'd be a wonderful set of arguments to be had between Judith and Benjamin about how, you know, uh, their father liked him best because he was a cook or mm-hmm. all these you know there'd be some yeah. meaty conversations to have there Like maybe she heard him quote I the guess bible more than we, uh, we'd have to ben assume she's not half prophet <laughs> I'm gonna guess <laughs> she would be the uh, daughter of now, she older Joseph's or younger second than wife ben? well it'd have to be his second wife wouldn't it so she'd have to be younger oh yeah true 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 yeah yeah, yeah. fair enough yeah the woman Benjamin grew up thinking was his yes. mother yeah the woman he calls mama yeah. Uh, so yeah, Judas Sisko. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd completely forgotten about her entirely. Thank you for reminding me. Hmm. Um, I mean, we barely see Nathan. We just see Nathan in the background. That's true. I don't. I don't know if he's a family member. We just hear about Nathan a lot. That's true. I do like those bits where we have these sort of tendrils that we know we have a kind of window into these lives, but don't have a full grasp of who these characters are. You know, I think it personalizes them. He, he plays a good restaurateur, though, because every time he walks by the kitchen, he's just, don't, Nathan, don't forget to stir the gumbo. I get, <laughs> get the impression he says that to Nathan several times a day. It's like, I've, I've worked in that, that industry, and I've seen uh, similar individuals. Uh, Nathan grits his teeth and yep. stirs the gumbo. Poor Nathan. Oh, I love it. But yes, Judith Sisko. Lovely. Lovely. Well, now for my number four, which is undisplaced, mm-hmm. although it did a lot of displacement itself, is the Herc. This for um, interesting, good choice. This is a species mm-hmm. that sits relatively far back in Klingon history, toward the beginning of their space flight. It may predate their grasp of warp drive. I'm not sure, but this is a species that came into Klingon territory, nearly annihilated the Klingons as a species. Uh, drove them back to, I think, just a very couple of worlds in their own system. And then the Klingons rallied and pursued the Herc towards their own system, but I don't think ever found their home world. Mm. And so there's this sort of persisting, if I recall correctly, the persisting Klingon sort of feared that the Herc would come back again. Again, paging CBS and Paramount, this is a mm. great storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. The people the Klingons fear. Exactly. Like, you know, there's not, there's not that. Many I can't imagine those. the Klingons were ever pushovers, so. No, no. <laughs> yeah, 
The Herc just land. What they do know. <laughs> so here we go. They're a species from the Gamma Quadrant. Oh, okay. Which invaded and plundered Konos in the 14th century. Oh, uh, yes. That's why they went f- to look for the Sword of Kalos in the Gamma Quadrant. Mm-hmm. 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 Because of the Herc, right? Mm-hmm. The Herc took it, yeah. Yeah. And who knows, that may have meant the Herc knew about the wormhole hundreds of years before the Yeah, how did they get here else, otherwise? Right? Yeah. All part of the Prophet's plan. Mm-hmm. Prophets don't like Klingons. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Herc. That's hmm. my number four. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay, well, my number three is Captain Lisa Cusack. Lisa Cusack. From the Deep Space Nine episode, The Sound of Her Voice. Oh, yeah. Who we, I guess we see deceased. Well, yeah, we see her corpse. We see her corpse. All we ever do is hear her voice, but yeah. does she ever become a real person in that episode? It's just oh, a beautiful man. episode, too. That's a great episode. I forgot that. And she's really cool. She's there slowly suffocating and dying, but she still yeah. plays pranks on them and jokes with them, gives them a hard time. Oh, yeah. And yeah. She's pretending, she pretends she gets eaten by a, a monster <laughs> and they stop paying attention to her. You don't even care. You weren't listening to her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, her interactions with Julian are great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful, that's a really poignant story. Yeah, I love uh, that episode. One of the, one of the best time stories they do honestly reminds me a little bit of um because you don't see it coming like there's no 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 there's no suggestion this seemed like a very sort of they're gonna either get there on time or they're not but it's gonna be close yeah exactly it reminds me there's this wonderful uh film i think it's called les maîtres du temps and it came out maybe early 80s uh art by mobius Mm -hmm. uh and it has a similar feel to that story i always wondered if there was a connection sort of thematically or if they'd kind of read it and thought oh yeah I would love to do something with an idea like that but yeah it's a beautiful beautiful animated film hmm. uh, that deals with a similar similar sort of problem of space time in a certain sense you know hmm. love that Mobius art yeah yeah oh <laughs> doesn't get much better than no Mobius. it doesn't yeah so that uh, that was my number three. Oh, that's a great man that's a great but her she I really wish they'd saved her, to be honest. I was really bummed out and sad by the end of that Oh, episode. yeah. No, it's, it's got like, a real... No, it has not a... Lisa. And they all are. They're, like, just gutted by it. Yeah. Because I think they really they go out there in this really beautiful sort of intention of going after their, their comrade. You yeah, know? they're supposed to be doing another thing that's quite important. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, well, no, we have to try to save this captain. Yeah. Uh, just, just a beautiful start. Really lays out the Federation Knowing values. that there's like all the numbers aren't working out it mm-hmm. really doesn't look like there's any possible way they can get there on time. Like, yeah. They're trying to find ways for her to ration her supply and extend the time they, they have to get there but there's yeah, that, yeah. there's no point at which they're like yeah well we got the numbers to here and maybe no, we're just going to go always anyway. always wrestling against the necessities. You know? yeah. yeah just beautiful. Now there's an interesting s- sort of lateral slide here. My number okay. three is also like the captain. Okay. Uh, my number three is a charmer. Oh, yeah. A yes. one date wonder. Oh, I think I know who this uh, is. And you can see his brains. Uh, it's Captain Baudet. Captain Baudet. Yeah. Who seems, I think, is a freighter captain. I do not perhaps? like Captain Baudet. <laughs> There's, I don't think there is a male character in that cast that likes Captain Baudet. They're all threatened by this charming, translucent, skulled. 
uh, swashbuckler of the stars. You know? Yeah, even Esri has dinner with him, and Worf's just like, why were you having dinner with Baudet? She's like, well, what business is it of yours? He's just like, I don't like Baudet. Like, I do not like I don't like Baudet. <laughs> oh, there's a great early conversation with Jadzia and Kira where they talk about Jadzia's taste in Manon, and yeah. Kira cannot understand what she sees She doesn't Baudet. understand the Baudet like, thing. you just see too much of Baudet. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, you have to look at his brain while you're eating dinner. <laughs> but this is a lovely way to think about one of the ways in which biology shows up in yeah. the series, right? You know, yeah. we have... Such differences in... Yeah, and our, our, our sort of biologically determined side, the side that, you know, knows what... We think secondary sexual characteristics are all that sort of stuff. I could see that being really easily irked or fetishizing the, mm-hmm. the extreme differences between ourselves and, and alien physiologies, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that seems to be part of what's going on with Captain Baudet. Yeah. You know? Like there's, there's this play of revulsion <laughs> and then just interest and curiosity, right? Yeah. Um, he's a talker. He's a talker. He does go on a bit. <laughs> We have that in common. I, yeah, I think we know why we've, <laughs> Dave has chosen Captain Boudet. I think we've figured this out here. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. So what's your number two? We're on number two. Yeah. So you're keeping track of this list very well. I'm. I Listen, old dog slowly learns new trick. Uh, yeah, exactly. Arf. Arfs. Yeah. Did you, you say Worf? <laughs> Pope Gowron? <laughs> Did you say Pope Gowron? <laughs> Okay, my number two is a group. A Groot? A Groot. Uh-huh. It is Groot? No, it's a group. Ah. Um, and that is the Nibirite Alliance. Ooh, nice. Apparently they're out on the fringes of Federation territory. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they do, what the, who they do it for, but apparently Worf thinks they're a noble enough cause to want to join them. That's if right. He leaves the That's Federation. where he's going to go and take... Uh, he's going to go to the Nibirite Alliance. Chief's like, the Nibirite Alliance? It's pretty far away. <laughs> but no, they never say what they do. But it's, it to like me, it's the one thing Worf thinks of. Like, that's the first thing he thinks of. He's like, well, if I can't be in Starfleet, I can't join anything Klingon. Yeah. I guess it's the Nibirite Alliance. And maybe that's because they're far away, but it does seem like some of those... Um, some of those smaller states that we see the Federation interacting with, like the Strelebians, mm. you know, who who tend to run very low war craft and sometimes even are only armed with lasers and things like that. Mm. You know, some of these different technological levels at which people persist. I wonder if this, as you say, isn't just one of those sort of regional, you know, it's mm-hmm. 3,000 light years away. It's going to take him eight months to get there or however long it's going to be. A place he can probably find some glorious battle. <laughs> Right. In the name of a underdog cause. Precisely. Something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Heard it's nice at like the Alamo Like le- a legitimized McKee, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, something like that, maybe. But I just yeah. want to know, so that's why yeah, I'm Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know that. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Your number two. My number two uh, is someone that we've heard lots about and whose spirit has showed up on screen but who's never physically been present. Okay. That is our dear friend, Surak. Oh, Surak. Well, his yes, Katra his, Katra, has his Katra we have seen. <laughs> Technically. That's, uh, a good, that's an interesting deep but cut there. Surak mm-hmm. uh, is one of those characters I would love to see make a great time travel episode. Yeah. It would make a great... I would have 
It would have been a good Enterprise episode. would have been a great Enterprise Enterprise. To Paul go back and meet Sirach and Archer. Yeah. Because he held his Katra. Yeah. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Mm. Uh, He has that relation with Sirach. Yeah, Yeah. I think that would be be really neat. Uh, There's a wonderful treatment of the teachings of Sirach online that uh, a, a fan put together. Wow. Um, if I can find it, maybe I'll try and put the link in the description or something. Huh. But um, it's a great PDF, and it, it's it sort of has the feel of you know some of the the great lists of the the Ferengi rules of acquisition. Somebody's kind of put this together, pulling stuff out that they've heard in the series and things, and then also filling it out further. It's done sort of in world by a Starfleet officer who's gone to Vulcan to learn huh. the Vulcan language and, and and learn about Surak and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a really it's a lovely text. Interesting. Yeah, I'll fun read that. Read. Yeah, Surak. Yeah. Yeah, Surak. the founder of Vulcanism. That's right. The, uh, <laughs> Not the, Vulcanism. The, uh, Vulcanism. The Vulcan adherence to logic as a way of life. I mean, yeah. that's some, something else I'd love to see in some of that, is just more looking at the different approaches to Surak's teaching. Because I like those enter- Enterprise episodes. There were a couple of really lovely ones where they look at different offshoot groups of Vulcans who either disagree with Surak and want to do something different, or who think that uh, you know they they appeal to some of the disciples and friends of Surak who taught slightly different things. You know um, that we don't suppress emotions; we kind of live with them and let logic rule them. And you know this, um, but the Surak approach is you know the dominant one certainly in twenty fourth century Vulcan culture. I would you know that's fair to say. Kind of character that rises up as a an, an example of peace in a yeah. violent time, as we've seen examples of here on Earth. You know, like yeah, Martin Luther King type figures and. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, yeah. So your number one, my no new number one, <laughs> after <laughs> poor Felix. Felix Just, was so brutally stolen from you. Yeah, that's okay. You know, why did he make Vic so hard to work with? It's true. Guy, <laughs> hard bargain. My number one. Mm-hmm. Now we have to look to Starfleet Academy if we okay. were going to try to find this person. Okay, that would be. Somebody who's been talked about in at least two series, but I think gets a mention in Deep Space Nine too. Okay. But it's definitely mentioned in Voyager and TNG, and that's Doctor Vassbinder. Wow! Now there's there's a there's a deep cut. Tell Do- us about Doctor Vassbinder. Has been brought up a few times. I think the first time is the time Wesley comes back from the academy. He's quite cocky has all the f- new fresh ideas in his head from the academy and Jordy's trying to show him the his new plasmadyne relay mm-hmm. very proud of it and was expecting a fun moment with his nerd buddy who loves this kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh, Wesley just kind of blows it off hmm. uh, saying it's antiquated that we don't even need to use plasmadyne relays because Dr. Vassbinder if you read his newest paper has a uh, now I forget what they were called but has a new technique. And right. I think probably in the theoretical stage. Right. Chakotay mm. failed Dr. Vassbinder's class on something time related. Okay. Something. It was a time class, though. It was right. in a time travel episode. He's just like, I don't know. I failed Dr. Vassbinder's class. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here for the ride on this one. <laughs> Commander great. except in time travel episodes. <laughs> yeah. what it says on his pips. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, perhaps nice. the most famous reference of Dr. Vassbinder is the time Picard had to see him oh, do man. a 
presentation that was not even the right presentation for the particular conference, but nobody could stop him because he spoke in one long, unbroken sentence. It was really quite hypnotic. Oh, man. I love that episode. That's one of the only episodes we see the back end of a Danube runabout. Huh. Because that's what they're traveling on back to the Enterprise. Huh. Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, that's a, I love that scene where he's doing the impression that they're all Never just had a chance to up. interrupt. It was quite hypnotic. <laughs> But you see, like, there's a lovely <laughs> continuity between that moment and, you know, Picard dressing up like the terrible human trafficker in uh, the first season. Yeah, of he loves you know. to do a goofy impression. He when loves he, when he, goofy accents, Yeah, right? he does. And he's good at them. Like, he's doing weird things with his eyes when he's doing the Vassbinder. Like, oh, Vassbinder yeah. seems like a character, and that's why I want to see him. He just comes on an episode, and the whole episode is him <laughs> talking because no one can interrupt. <laughs> just him saying hello out of the airlock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that would be a great episode no matter what series he showed that's up true. in. Just, so just I feel like it should almost have been TNG. <laughs> but Vassbinder. I would love nice. to see any episode with Vassbinder. So, my number one uh, has a tiny bit of cheating about it. Oh, my. Uh, I'll explain the structure of my larceny. What I'm talking about... number one position, it better be a good explanation. uh, It's true. (laughs) Uh, It's really about two species that we've heard mention of. Hmm. One very recent, one which reaches right back into the, the, the depths of sort of Trek history... But neither of them have we ever seen depicted uh, in live action. I think there are depictions of one in Star Trek Online, and the other has showed up in the animated series, hmm. but was also mentioned in one of my favorite deep cut references in the first season of Picard by huh. Riker. Oh. When they're at the house. Oh, yes. He says, We've had trouble with Kazinti. Trouble with the Kazinti. The great felinoid, eight foot or nine foot tall creatures. Uh. that uh, humans fought a series of wars with very Mm -hmm. early on, maybe even before the Romulan Earth War, Mm -hmm. and had, as a result of those wars, confined them from having... One of the terms of their treaty in the end was that sort of Kazinti space ends up being almost entirely encircled by the Federation. Uh, They're not allowed to raise sort of war weapons, but they have these patrol ships they can use. And it's one of those patrol ships that shows up in a great animated series episode called The Slaver Weapon. Mm-hmm. And we should see they have a certain amount of telepathic ability huh. and have a um, strictly uh, biologically divided society. Females by the Kazinti are considered um, non-sentient. Uh, and so you would really only ever encounter a Kazinti male out there on a starship, one assumes. Well, I don't agree with that at all. Well, and that's that's your prerogative, sir. You're a progressive Kazinti advocate. And the other one uh, linked to them is a uh, species from out sort of that side of the Federation, but down closer to Ferengi and Cardassian space, uh, who are called the Zenkethi. The Zenkethi. Uh, who are, seem to be some kind of reptilian kind mm-hmm. of a race mm-hmm. who the fact that they're close to the Cardassians in that respect I find interesting wedged between Cardassian and Federation space pretty much yeah just sort below in that whole area. space kind of yeah uh, just all yeah sort of out on the, 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 the edges of the Bajor sector essentially mm. I think Corward from Bajor but mm. 
Um, like you hear of both Federation and Cardassian skirmishes with the uh, absolutely, and the Zen and and the Zenkethi is one of the diversions used by the Dominion at one point when they're I forget what they're doing, but they're they send them out that way in order to do something different. Hmm. Uh, well, they're in a tough position if they want to expand anywhere; they can't go anywhere. Yeah, but, and they've got the Sheliak and the Tholians nearby as well. So they always seem strong going. enough to pal or at least hold off the Federation or mm-hmm. Cardassian. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. They would be interesting. They yeah. Well, the other thing about the Kazinti, Zenkathy just always rem- I'm always reminded of by the Kazinti, but the Kazinti are also yeah. one of the things in Star Trek that I think is really delicious because they're a wholly independent creation of the author Larry Niven, right? Mm-hmm. But when the slaver weapon was taken up as a story, because Niven had written you know one of these stories and they said we'd like to adapt it essentially mm-hmm. for Star Trek, he said sure yeah use the Kazinti that's great. And so this whole different set of stories is somehow shoehorned in the back door of Star Trek's canonicity by mm-hmm. uh, virtue of this one animated episode and one line from Riker 50 years later. <laughs> I love it. But there's something so broad about that that it really it uh, takes my fancy, you know? Now say Zenkathi Kazinti ten times fast. <laughs> I do not like Captain Baudet. <laughs> oh, on to biology then, eh? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, a good branch from uh, the list to the topic of biology is the avians from the planet Zindis. One of the five Zindi species, right? Or sentient Six. species. Six, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Being the... Um, lost the avians. There's the arboreals. There's the primates, I guess they call them. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, they're like the humanoids kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, there's the insectoids, mm-hmm. the reptilians. And then there's the, the, uh, the aquatic uh, aquatics. Yeah. And the avians who, we, who mm-hmm. did not survive the cataclysm. I loved some of those scenes in Enterprise when they were deliberating. And you could see the sort of sensibilities of these different species really contesting against each other. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting uh, science fiction notion to imagine a planet where there have developed sentient creatures in all kinds of environments Mm -hmm. in the world. And, you know, uh, we're getting closer on this planet to accepting the fact that dolphins are pretty clever and that whales seem Mm -hmm. to have... Star Trek IV, so does that certainly whales. Precisely. Uh, And, you know, every, every Starfleet ship has the possibility to have a cetacean ops section, right? The Enterprise D certainly had cetacean ops. Dolphins were understood to be quite excellent at astro-navigation, right? Yeah, it's, and it's interesting that it's not something, the closest thing we see to that, which doesn't actually really count at all, is just the Romulans with the Remans just next to them. But they just came in and took over the pl- <laughs> Yeah. They just took over their territory. Yeah. And I mean, that that's the essential Romulan pattern that they follow in every other mm-hmm. uh, encounter. They either turn the species into a client species or they enslave them. They did the same with the Nausicans and all sorts of people, right? Mm-hmm. Now, these are some interesting, like, there's there's ways in which I think we can comment on how biology influences culture. If you mm-hmm. take an example like the Nausicans, who grow up on a really hard Scrabble planet, mm-hmm. uh, where there's intense competition for every kind of resource, the Nausicaan practice of contesting things with violence and guile, uh, which seem to be two of their defining traits, makes an awful lot of sense. In the same way as we can see this sort of the many physical redundancies of Klingons 
including their armored skulls and you know multiple redundant organs and you know part and parcel of how they get through the the universe a human would not necessarily subject themselves to the things that Klingon does no you know like the most the, certainly would the ritual of ascension right as O'Brien you know quite naturally points out that makes some people's heads explode those pain sticks you know the bachelor party exactly yes yeah the bachelor party I'm gonna do it Miles I've come to the realization I'm going to kill Worf. <laughs> kill Worf. Kill, kill Worf. Jesus. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to do it. I'm a doctor in Starfleet, but I am going to kill my commanding officer. <laughs> but yeah, the biology on Zindus, super interesting. It's strange that we don't see more instances of that, even just in Star Trek. Sure. Sure, yeah, there seems to be a lot of singular, just, uh, singular sentient species per planet. I mean, now. I guess we do see another example of that. Isn't there an episode where somebody has... Oh, it's the um, it's the, the Kesprit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't Kesprit. know if the Kes or the Prit, they act like they're different species, and they look a little bit different, so I don't know if they're, yeah. what the deal is there. But And there's the, you know, the, the, and they don't get along. They've split their planet in half, basically. Yeah, the original series episode with Lokai... And the other guy, whose name I don't remember. Bella. Bella, there you go. Which was, yeah, a bit of a ham-fisted episode, but certainly does a similar thing. Similar thing, yeah. Um, yeah, but it seems, yeah, that a, a lot of the time, the sense is that there'd be a sort of single dominant sentient species on a planet, you know? Mm -hmm. Or maybe planets tend to only produce one sentient species. And they played a big part in the Zindi storyline, mm -hmm. the avians. And now, you know... Cause it seems like they're all suffering this like shared kind of PTSD from the loss of the aliens. Mm -hmm. Like the, mm -hmm. these different species on Zendis don't get along, but they do have like a huge amount of genetic similarity. Like they can and they're somewhere down the line probably came from yeah. The, they're incentivized to work together. Proto Zindi species or something by the loss of the aliens, right? Yeah, that they they had so ruined their planet. But without with without the loss of the aliens, I don't think we see the Zindi attack Earth. I don't think they would have that f collective fear between them all. No, and there, I think there would have been no no reason for them to be contacted by those other creatures. Not right? so they easily. Just I mean, they just, just would have picked somebody else. Yeah. 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 So it's interesting the part that they end up end up playing. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that thought we were just having about sort of single species mm -hmm. sentience, you know, I wonder if that might not be one of those ways to track species seeded by the progenitors, the, uh, the progenitors in, right maybe in the tng episode the chase yeah wonder that's a two-parter i think isn't it no nope. was that a single episode yeah it's just really tight and there's really a lot good. going on in that episode yeah they there's the the storyline with the klingon who's, yeah he who ends up aboard their ship because his ship gets disabled oh yeah and he has that great conversation with data yeah, your strength is known even in the Klingon Empire. <laughs> yeah. He's like, will you play the strength game with me? He's just like, sure. Slams it down instantly. He's just like, oh! <laughs> he's he so himself and almost knocks himself up. Yeah, he's, he's pretty funny. Yeah. We are here doing scientific research. <laughs> Picard and the Robbie, and they're just like, what? <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. not. Like Come up with a good lie, um, at least. But yeah, I wonder if something in the uh, in the seeding uh, means that the kind of sentience they tended to produce was the sort that sort of colonizes a planet and, and uses it as a recent article mm -hmm. uh, title I was reading in my newsfeed said, "We are humans are a cuckoo." 
using mm-hmm. the earth as a nest. Hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, might be... Might You're be sitting in mine right now. Exactly. So, yeah, the... the Watch the, those the, eggs there. Oh, I thought that was some kind of protoplasm you were just dropping there. <laughs> <laughs> What, if it looks like protoplasm, it's already too late. <laughs> Ooh. Um, but yeah, the progenitors, in that sense, influence, I think, the entire galaxy's evolutionary direction. Um, Such a good episode. Because there's so much of body plans. And it's a good way for... It's um, beautiful as an explanation of why everyone's bipedal. Yeah, why there's all this bilateral symmetry in sentient creatures, right? Ten, most species have ten fingers. Like, yeah, gets pretty detailed the similarities, and yeah. obviously that's for budget reasons in television. But I love it as an explanation in universe. Yes, and yeah. I just think it's beautiful as it's as a kind of a message of unification in the Alpha Quadrant. Now, it, it doesn't say how far that influence goes, like how, but it, it seems like an Alpha Beta Quadrant kind of thing, though. Played by Salome Jens, who played the founder lady, mm-hmm. and they look she a lot sure alike. Did. And I just wonder if that's a yeah. If they ended up evolving into the founders, or oh, you if, never know. If yeah. kind of the gamma quadrants tied into that as well. Well, and we see a lot of bilateral but, symmetry in the gamma yeah, and delta true. quadrants as well. Yeah, you know, which makes me suspect maybe they went they went quite far afield. Mm-hmm. Right? And that was they're doing that seeding four billion years ago, something oh, like yeah, that. Oh yeah, yeah, they were the um, first species from what they can so tell. They said they searched endlessly the cosmos and found no one like there themselves. There could be a line through the Which is also kind of sad and beautiful. There's us. a lot of nice things in that. Yeah. yeah, there are. We searched endlessly and found no one like ourselves. So we just left a message for whoever might find it, yeah. In some ways, very much like the uh, the probe they find. Yeah, the Resicant. The Resicant probe. Uh, but in a, in, a, in a whole different order of magnitude, you know. I'm sure they also had good flautists. I'm sure they may have. Perhaps even a nose flautist or two. Wow. Oh, yeah. That is impressive. Gotta love a good nose flout. Now, they probably would have been my number one choice in that list had we not seen them once. Indeed. Because that's amazing. If they had just been an idea and you didn't, you know, a voice or something, Mm -hmm. probably would have picked them. Yeah. That is a great episode. Really does go, does a lot of work in explaining the biology of the Star Trek universe. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know, make some of those species and creatures that sit in some ways outside of those orders. Yeah, really stand out. You know, the and, Zindi, for instance, who have this, and the other ones, how they're sort of connected double. in a way that they aren't sort mm-hmm. of connected mm-hmm. to the Tholians or oh yeah. The, the uh, Shaliak what or the Gorn or some of these from creatures. the animated series with their... Oh, the Edoans, arm, the, the third arm. The yeah. Edoans, yeah. yeah. Or we, for that matter... Uh, who we also see in Lower Decks. Creatures like the Horta. The ho- yeah. You know, the great yeah, pizza sure. creature from Janus 6, which are a wonderful notion. You know, that they, they have these pearl-like eggs, mm-hmm. and the whole species is reduced down to a single uh, exponent, mm-hmm. uh, individual who can guard the eggs and wait for them to hatch, you know? And lay all the eggs, I believe. I believe they may have laid all the eggs, being as well. like the culmination of yeah. the DNA of that generation, and then they lay the, all the eggs because I think that's what it's doing. It's chewing out the caves to lay the eggs in. Well, yeah, and it's right. trying to protect and, and keep the eggs safe till they till they hatch. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting biology. You know, that's it a silicon-based is. biology, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, they eat rocks, mm-hmm. and they're minerals. capable of certain kinds of telepathic communication. You know, like that uh, touch yep. contact with a Vulcan, for instance. I wonder if a beta is ever so much be able pain. To yeah, 
uh, in my hand, he says. My um, hand. But, you know, the they're one of those creatures that ultimately ends up getting folded into the Federation, the new generation of Horta. Some of them end up serving aboard Federation starships. Super interesting. Probably the Titan, because the Titan was known as the ship that had the most diverse crew. Oh, I'm, uh, they might have had a Horta aboard, sure. Yeah. And they had, it was such a big ship, and they had different sections of the ship that were designed to be comfortable for different species and things like oh, that. Oh, right on. Well, that's certainly a feature. If you look back in the, the technical manual for the Enterprise D, there's a really interesting section. I mean, interesting for terrible, terrible nerds. Uh, no, just wonderful podcasters. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's what I meant to say. Wonderful podcasters. We'll, we'll, we'll cut um, what you said. That's a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> we should do that more often, too. <laughs> um, the We're an open book here at Loki. Well, yeah, there's a really interesting section where they're talking about uh, the makeup of quarters, that quarters have individually variable gravity, temperature, humidity, uh, that you can, in fact, request certain kinds of accommodations for different gas makeups for atmosphere and all sorts of stuff, right? Mm. So, yeah, they're they're intended to be able to be retrofit, mm-hmm. but the Titan being set up for that is another kind of step beyond, you know. I well, their chief engineer is Melora, so... Oh, is it? Oh, right they on. They probably have all of engineering low gravity. I imagine they do. Or at least a large portion of it. Funnest engineering <laughs> department in Starfleet. <laughs> Whee! Whee! We don't use stairs or anything. We just float. Well, they they could just have a lot of um, I don't remember the name of her species, but they could just have a lot of them working in engineering. Too. Yeah, yeah. Just you do see certain ships even that become very well. I guess we always have the Enterprise is very human centric. Mm-hmm. Well, and there was uh, a, there was a constellation the, or a constellation class uh, ship that was all Vulcan. Yeah. Right, that was one of their first major contributions to Starfleet in terms of sort of material they produced and, and produced and crewed it. Um, yeah, Saylock or whatever his name Something like was. that, yeah. Such a jerk. My game! My game! Oh, yeah, that's another all Vulcan that's ship, an, that's, Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. not the one you're talking about. No. no, this was one that would have been contemporaneous with the original, or contemporaneous, sorry, with the original Enterprise. Oh, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah no. The name now, but, uh, he did, didn't like to work with non-Vulcans, that, that captain. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's the captain 9 yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Now, that's another interesting, you know, we talked about the, the, the folks from the low-gravity world that her bones are fragile and her yeah. muscles get tired. Vulcans, who we all know are very strong and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, have this because they come from a high-gravity world, mm-hmm. right? The the planet orbiting 40 Eridani A that they come from uh, is, I think, 1.3 G or something is its normal gravity. Mm-hmm. So humans would feel sluggish. I believe um, Archer or somebody comments is how they feel like they have lead in their boots. Yeah, but that difference has meant that Vulcan bones tend to be very dense. Mm-hmm. So an average Vulcan will mass more than an average human mm-hmm. of the same sort of rough body size. Yep. Uh, and they tend to be... Uh, They're stronger than Klingons. Two to three times stronger than an average human, yeah. Mm. So often as strong or stronger than Klingons. Mm. Partially because they're just operating in environments where their muscles are just so much stronger than they need to be for that gravity. Which explains why the Romulans don't have that. They went to Romulus, which seems to be more of Earth-like gravity. Yeah. And they lost that strength, it would seem, over time. Yeah. Along yeah. with their psionic abilities. Or maybe that's even connected. Who knows? Well, we don't know. No, because uh, the, the, the history of Vulcan is pretty murky that way, right? And uh, both its tectonics and its dryness and all those other features. I guess there are some sort of hints in, in, in Vulcan historiography that the planet wasn't always that way 
and that's somewhere in their past, they kind of broke Vulcan uh, and um, created their own ecological disaster that made the planet the way it is today. Although the nictitating membranes that Vulcans have, to me, would argue against that, right? Like that would say to me that they've been mm-hmm. in a place where there's a lot of blowing wind mm-hmm. and blowing particulate. They have two the eyelids, yeah. inner eyelids, exactly like, like cats. Um, and you know that to me says that they're. They either have to keep their eyes open a lot in bright sunlight, or there's some kind of stuff that's going to blow into their eyes and constantly irritate it, unless those are present. Archer offers to Paul sunglasses. It's just oh, yeah. like, I evolved on this world. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Never to soften the blow to Paul. <laughs> no. Aren't you supposed to be Starfleet's finest? God. Um... He's like, I needed in sunglasses in Florida. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. on that world. Um, and, you know, then there are creatures that don't... You know, back, not to interrupt you, but back to Zindi for one second. Wouldn't sure. it be cool if Earth had a similar thing, though? We had, like, the Velociraptor people and, like, the Dolphin people or, like... Just, that would We're be... just not letting Bigfoot have a chance to open the giant scorpion people. Centers, yeah. That yeah. would be cool. It would be pretty Infinite amazing. diversity, man. Infinite combinations. Yeah. Yeah. And the bird people. Like, they, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a bird friend? Oh, yeah. I remember, you know, there was this old issue of National Geographic. I remember from years and years ago, my parents had this big shelf of National Geographic when I was a kid. And I, you know, I would just randomly pull them out and I, you know, there was this one story in it that talked about uh, sort of a kind of imaginative evolutionary picture of what um, Saurian creatures would have looked like if they had sort of. Uh, developed to the point of being tool-using animals. The, the the Voyager episode. Oh, that's a lo- yeah. There's a lovely Voyager episode about that. Well, they're called the Saurians. I I think and so. They maybe yeah. We're a dinosaur that left Earth. Yeah, and there's. I think you can still find. It's a very famous image that was. It was this sort of reptilian creature with mm-hmm. kind of big eyes mm-hmm. and three or four digits. Yep. And yeah, it is a kind of bipedal body plan wearing a loincloth. Yeah. With some kind of bag strapped along the side of it, right? Yeah, and it just, it struck me as so exciting. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh man, wouldn't it be great if our world did contain those things? Uh, it'd be such a different perspective on life. Yeah. You know? Your bird uh, friend could sleep like half brain at a time, and you just like see their eye kind of slip. It'd be amazing. <laughs> Are you paying attention to me? Oh, yes. Well, half. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be pretty incredible. Although we are apparently fairly close to cracking dolphin life. Yeah, that would be. That, I look forward to that day. Ago. I definitely want to have a conversation with a dolphin. It just turns out dolphins are this year, if possible, just always heckling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice hat guy in the boat. I've been practicing. How rude! I see you've been practicing as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I've been genetically modifying myself on the side. <laughs> uh, speaking of genetic modification, that's uh-huh. uh, topic biological topic we could bring up i mean dave is wannabe sulabon what a great species yeah there's and there's there's lots of others who have similarly modified themselves the borg have modified themselves to the point that the modifications sort of are the species famously the augments and con yeah yeah and of course then there's the two confected species that we meet, the jemhadar and the vorta who the founders sort of Mm. built from the ground up out of a pre-existent Early creatures, at least with the Vorta. The Vorta. The Gemadar, they may have they, made whole time. Yeah, it looks like they cooked the Gemadar in a lab. Yeah. But yeah, the Vorta were uh, kind of a monkey-type creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the Augments, to me, are one of those beautiful ways in which the older history of Trek 
stays current. You know, Khan showing up in the original series, and then, of course, The Wrath of Khan, which, you know, apart from Undiscovered Country, maybe the, the best classic Trek movie. It's, it's um, pretty great. Yeah, for me, it's number three. I like a vo- a Voyage Home a lot. Oh, that's, that's, that's a great one. I've got to save those whales. Yeah. They're just so irresponsible in that movie. <laughs> I do. I have a hard time watching them interact with 20th century Earthlings. <laughs> but apart from that, it's a great movie. Um, Where do you keep the nuclear vessels? <laughs> the nuclear vessels. The nuclear vessels. Oh, man. So the, the history of the augments, though, you know, stays with us right through Deep Space Nine and has a powerful impact on that series. Sure, yes, of Julian Bashir. Mm-hmm. But but sees some interesting deployments in some of the newer uh, versions of Trek as well. You think about Lower Decks, well, with some the... of the ways we see cyborgs appear in sure. Discovery. With... There's some kinds of augmentations which are okay. With Bashir and that group of mm-hmm. um, kind of defective augments yep. that he works with are kind of a you know, an underground not absolutely resurgence of that technology is that was kind of an issue dealt with long before even Kirk's day. And oh in, yeah, in the, it's been illegal the whole time. You the know, eugenics war on Earth, which was you know closer to our time than well, their it would time. have ended in like about 2020 or something. If yeah, I recall. and we're you know we're developing similar technologies now that mm-hmm. can lead to the ability to start to augment ourselves so mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see hopefully we handle it a little better <laughs> but it really has de- determined in huge ways the way that the the federation has developed as a culture because they're really anti uh genetic modification for sort of recreational or eugenic purposes and i wonder if other planets have their own reasons for this having that similar feeling could well not just well. not just because of the Earth example. Yeah, well, it seems to be have become general Federation law in any event. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it seemed a very outlawed kind of taboo thing for the Sulaban even way back then. Everyone yeah. was just like, "Whoa, they're like genetically modified here." Yeah, because that's true. We do meet the Sulaban in the fair, in the pilot episode. He says they're not they're like, "Why would you let somebody do this to you?" Like, "Why would I not? I can breathe in space." And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they seem but, to have been a sort of extremist. Yeah sect among uh, the Sulaban, who themselves were more comfortable with it, I think, than humans would be. Mm-hmm. That's probably how you get to that point. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. I mean, there there are other kinds of fusions. You know, the Binars or the Borg are other kinds of fusions of technology and, and flesh, which are yeah. not quite the same as, uh, as the kind of augmentation the Sulaban would tend to practice. But uh, in both cases, interestingly, the technology takes them over. Because yes. the Binars' hard drive is about to crash, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they need the Enterprise. Yep. And for the Borg, their dedication to a certain concept of the unification of two branches of exploration and yeah. development. Um, yeah, the yeah. Perfect exactly. combination of those two fields. It, it's just it's become the only thing they are because uh, they aren't any kind of diversity anymore. They aren't any kind of individuality or anything like that. All of that is irrelevant. And it's kind of um, replicated biology, you could say. In what sense? Like data? Yeah, like data or an mm-hmm. exocomp. Oh, gosh, yeah, the exocomps. Where it's not really biology we're talking about anymore, more technology, which would probably be its own episode. Yeah. But, but it's it, interesting how it is just a mirror of biology, especially data. He just sort of just has a technological version of mm-hmm. everything biological. He's like, yeah, I can sweat if I want, or I can, he can yeah, do I can all those things. Jesus, yeah, yeah. He can, yeah, he's um, like, I can eat if I want. It's, um, yeah, it's really... It, so one of the things it does, it raises in my mind is, you know, at various points, 
you know, there's the moment when uh, the Enterprise might be destroyed because uh, Nagilam. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and they have a fascinating discussion. The big blue face. Yeah, I think it might be Picard and Crusher and Wesley have a discussion about what they think is going to happen once they're dead. Mm-hmm. And Picard is clearly not a... He's not an adherent of any organized religion, it's no. clear, but he has this deeply spiritual take on what consciousness is. And he sees that as incapable of being eradicated. You know, in the sense that Plato would have discussed the soul using the body like a coat, right? Mm-hmm. We don't disappear when our coat is worn out, nor can the soul become dead when the body has ceased to function, he would argue, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, Plato argues in the Phaedo that the the, uh, the life of the body is the closest the soul ever comes to death. But it, it you know, it asks questions about what is that, what is that, um, emergent spark mm-hmm. in data, in the exocomps, in other things that mm-hmm. lends them that quality that we understand as liveliness, mm-hmm. right? Of intention, of that's a faculty the- of causation that's independent from the rest of the beings around it, right? And that can influence and affect them mm-hmm. in non-passive ways. I mean, you could ask Noonien Sung. He could mm-hmm. tell you what that key component is, I think. I wonder if he could. <laughs> yeah, It'd well, inter- you know, I mean, he got there, but he, he could have just stumbled there. But I wonder if he didn't have off a sense old, of Off and old, off and wrong, Well, and, and with Data, it appears that something about the positronic element of his network yeah. is what allows it. And, I mean, if we're going to be, like, super serious about it, a positron mm-hmm. is a time-reversed electron, mm-hmm. right? It, it's an antimatter electron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so has sort of inverse properties, essentially. Uh, Which ultimately means, to me, at least, as a guy who has done a lot of thinking about the nature of consciousness, the the capacity in us to recursively take ourselves sort of in view in our minds and think back over all that we've been in real time and allow that to be influenced by our ongoing reflections. Mm -hmm. That, to me, biologically is an analog of an electron positron mm-hmm. back and forth. You know, where that time reversion can allow a kind of reflection which is like our self reflexive consciousness. That ah, doesn't that's interesting, yeah. It doesn't depend exactly on time, even though it persists and subsists and enacts in time. You know? There's a more relevant connection to the past than yeah. what uh, just a standard machine yeah. hyper intelligent because I think we are that the measure no, of a man and, and much yeah. of the rest of Star Trek argues that data has consciousness, which is not reducible to simply highly sophisticated algorithmic input-output patterns. Right? Like there's something that transcends. There's obviously something in data that does do that. Absolutely, just like there is in us, right? But as Picard says, in measure of a man, he doesn't know what that is in him either. Yeah. Or that he even has one. Yeah, he's but like, we know that we're here, right? We yeah. know that we're existent. He's like, I'll tell you I'm sentient. You'll tell me I'm sentient, but I can't prove that to you any more than I can prove it for it's Mr. Data box, here. Right? He's yeah. Like, so he's like, if we're playing that game, but that's do the it thing across that I, the board. That I, even about the biology here that I love is that each of these ways we come at uh, body plans mm-hmm. or how 
how planets evolve sentient life, which is sort of the basic question we're, we're dancing around here, mm -hmm. and how you, you represent that interestingly in narrative forms yeah. as, as something to, to ponder and interact with. In a world like Star Trek, finding some real believable biological differences that you can right? attribute to. But somehow all of that extrudes from that original sort of impulse to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and in that sense, each creature, each person, each member of the Federation is this sort of font of mysterious source. You know, a spring whose actual, you know, like an artesian spring whose actual source we don't see because it's always hidden in the ground, right? The universe uh, experiencing itself. Absolutely, right? It's going to do it everywhere. Yeah, infinitely in every point, right? Mm. Uh, and I think that that's one of the, the beauties that comes out of this kind of long-form consideration of technical, cultural, biological, physiological, mm -hmm. anatomical differences. Yeah. Which and even, even going beyond those. finds, like you say, interesting narrative ways to tackle. There's genderless species, like in the outcast. Sure. Or they, species that have a sort of genderless component in them as well. Yeah. And there's also a trigendered species, mm -hmm. like in the cogenitors in yeah. Enterprise. Yeah. Which are two interesting ways they... Oh, I think I was conflating it with that episode. That's right. I was conflating the outcast with the cogenitors. Oh, yes. Well, the yeah. outcast is the one where Riker strikes up a relationship with a member of a yes. androgynous species. Yes. Though they're seemingly at a point where they're having some emergent gender separation. Yeah, it seems so. Yeah. An interesting but, way to but, think about gender identity and gender expression yeah. as independent of biological form. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of arguments about that in our world right now. Sure. I think people get confused about saying that you know, there is such a thing as literal, you know, your physical plumbing, mm -hmm. which might be, say, male or, or female or lots of mixtures in the middle of that, mm -hmm. in, you know, sort of on a spectrum, right? But okay. that givenness of our biology isn't always the same as how we experience ourselves mm -hmm. and how we express that culturally, right? And that's where I think we arrive at the level of gender. But people often seem to try and reduce or confuse the two things, you know? and. Mm -hmm. Well, and that member of we the androgynous species in that episode, yeah. Yeah, very much. She just tells Riker that she thinks she's female, though. She's, especially now that she's on the ship and she's seeing the difference between the two right up close. Yeah. She's she notices like, well, I don't think I'm experience. like you. She's just like, to Riker, mm. but I like you. Yeah. I mean, one of the worst moments in Star Trek history is the look on Riker's face when she tells him that she feels like she's female, though. A little bit creepy, Riker. That's the yes. worst Riker moment in oh, <laughs> the history of the show. Well, yeah, I mean, Riker and his I didn't know your smile could reach your eyeballs, like, but apparently it can. While blushing quite a bit, mind you. Yeah, it's true. Oh, yeah, my god, Not my favorite moment. Good episode. Yeah. Riker Settle down, Riker. Dog. Riker is a hound dog. Bit of a hound in those days. Yeah, it's true. Um, Needed a strong uh, Betazoid woman to... That's true. Straighten him out. Yeah. Uh, Set some ground rules. He's like, I have a plant on every away mission, buddy. <laughs> Plus, I can read your mind and emotions, so. Yeah, it's true. See you at supper. Well, and you know, there are uh, there are some creatures like that who have abilities that seem to transcend strict biological function as we currently understand it. You know, telepathy in the, in the beta Z mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. um, the shape-shifting of the founders. But then there are creatures that... Well, we have abilities we, that are just, just completely outside of our, you know, the creature from Farpoint. Or oh, sure. the lovely uh, sort of asteroid space whale things uh, they meet. In, the Gormaganders. Uh, well, uh, Gormaganders, in, in, yeah. In uh, Discovery. Oh, which is a, uh, that's a great 
creature and a great mm. name. Yeah, Gormagain. But um, also the creatures that the Enterprise meets in TNG, where the little baby one attaches itself. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, like, little baby is, like, half the size of the saucer section. Dude. Milk suckers. Like, yeah, yeah. You have to sour the milk. Sour the milk. Um, oh, it was in Relics. You know, and, and those those have the capacity... No, like no, they just mentioned it in Relics. To, to exist in the vacuum of space, right? That is a wholly different biology than we can even conceive, other than maybe yeah. mushrooms or tardigrades. Well, right? yeah, I was going to bring up the tardigrade. One of the things I really like that we see a few times in Star Trek is when they they make the micro macro. Mm-hmm. I like that because I deal with the micro a lot in my daily life, and I'm always concerned with the microbiology of soil and mm-hmm. whatnot, and, you know, complete ecosystems and bi- sure. biomes. I suppose that side you can't see except for its function. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You can tell if it's not there, you just can't see if it's there. Sure, yeah. sure, yeah. Yeah. The, I like when Star Trek makes the micro macro, which they do with those tardigrades mm-hmm. in Discovery, which I think is a very cool creature. Oh, yeah. Just kind of zips along the mycelial network. Yeah, it's yeah. Super hardy. I mean, tardigrades can survive in space, so it's not even that big of a thing. It's just there a apparently might be some version. on the moon that we accidentally yeah. left there that are just sitting there hibernating. Could be yeah. evolving into moonigrades. Moonigrades. Oh. Or do you like tardamoons better? <laughs> tardamoons. I do like the sound of that. Yeah, tardamoons. Tardamoons. So. Oh man. I, for one, welcome our Tardamoon overlords. Overlords. Yeah. Gosh, you're giving them a lot of... I mean, I'm not going to say it's going to happen immediately, but <laughs> left alone to their own devices. To their own devices. Mm-hmm. They'll just Tardamoon it up. Looking at us and our cool beaches and stuff. Oh, yeah. Thinking of those guys. The resentment will build, Dave. Oxygen. I welcome you, Tardamoons. <laughs> Don't worry, Dave will come on board. You just uh, need some time. Never. In the classic words of John Picard, we will fight you. This far, no father. That's right. Um, so yeah, then there's creatures that go all the way beyond biology entirely. Well, and with the macro thing, though, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. um, Voyager does the episode Macrocosm, where they have macroscopic viruses that have infiltrated oh. the ship, and these viruses are, you know, the size of a a, a dog or good, <laughs> but they're flying around doing what viruses do. Mm-hmm. They're just now it makes you wonder if they evolved kind of alongside creatures like the Gormagander, that whose great size kind of sure. scale up and makes more sense with these yeah, yeah. kind of viruses that they, you know, I mean, there has to be some organism sure. they're designed to... Well, and I think, isn't there a, isn't there a, um, isn't there a Voyager episode where they accidentally pierce the side of a giant space creature and don't even realize they've done it for quite some time? Yes. Now, I don't think it's clear that that is a creature of biology. That seemed to, from what I recall, I think I remember the episode. It's got some kind of energetic structure, but I don't know if it has a whole lot of physical structure. Yeah, like it's made up of nebulas and asteroid fields and like... Yeah. But it is a creature, and there's the guy who's stuck in there, because it messes with your mind. It has... Oh, that's right. And the guy who thinks he's trying to kill it, and like... Yeah. They yeah. find a way out, and he's just like, I've been trying to get out of here forever, and then they finally give him a way out, and he's just like, no, I must stay and hunt the creatures. It's like, well, That's right. Yeah, that's that right. I think there was an original series episode, something like that as well. Yeah. Um, but, but there yeah. are transcendent entities that probably started as biology and mm-hmm. transcended that. Like and certainly we see an episode the of The Q, of course. See, uh, the Q, and also the, um, now... The Travelers, uh, maybe, in a way? The Travelers, but also the Luminous... What's a Nagilum? Or Nagilum? Yeah, we don't know what a Nagilum is. 
uh, but also the, the the guy who becomes luminous in uh, oh, the sure. season three uh, transfigurations. TNG, so transfigurations. I guess three five maybe I forget. What a lovely episode! You know, yeah. that his his it's almost like he's he's kind of shedding or molting. You know, his people are after him. They yeah. say he's a dangerous criminal. And he's he's a kind of criminal that they've known for a time on that planet, mm-hmm. who's breaching their societal norms. Yeah, uh, I, uh, he's technically a criminal, but he yeah. hasn't done anything wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think they would they would classify him ultimately as a kind of terrorist on their world. Yeah, um, a biological terrorist. Yeah, precisely, and it's partly because they're afraid of this really punctuated moment of evolution they're coming toward. He's an X Man. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah. That's, that's the TNG X-Men episode. The, that's the what I took from sure. it upon recent watching. That's a lovely, like, oh, this that's is the a lovely take. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because it's, it's that jump in evolution that they're fearing. It, it represents, I think, a kind of death for them. You know, a cultural death, a material death. Mm-hmm. You know, the... the, the Their change. culture is going to be just massively oh, altered in ways that yeah. they don't want to happen or to deal with because it's going to be chaotic I'm sure. Well, and I think we, we see similar Not fears. all are going to transcend. There's going to be this separation in the society. Which is the what they're separate or they're worried about just like in X-Men. The sure. Humans are worried about that they're not the better anymore. Yes. Yes. And you know there are also ways in which that, that episode to me figures and kind of meditates on the process of suffering and grief that are parts of the biological realities we experience, you know? Because suffering is just essentially unavoidable Mm -hmm. in life because everything is free. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be that friction. There's always going to be some microorganism that's gotten into me that hasn't gotten into you or into you that hasn't gotten into me. There's there's always that level of... It's the same on the microscopic. Sometimes Mm -hmm. atoms or things are going to smash into each other. Absolutely, right? And the other side of that is the sense of grief that those who remain behind experience. In my day-to-day work, I deal with an enormous amount of grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be a beautiful thing, you know, right at Me the moment too, of death. Me too, when a tree dies. It's not the same uh, thing. But. You know, it, it can crack people open and let them experience their humanity together. But grief can also cave us in on ourselves. Grief yeah. can force us to confront the possibility and horizon of our own mortality in ways that can really hit people where they are living mm-hmm. for lack of a better word slash bug. And, and people can get terrified and, and angry and combative and all sorts of things around those moments because it's a violation of our sense of being alive. And I think that's what that character in some ways represents to his people. That very violation of just mm-hmm. everything they feel that they are and all those ways they know of identifying and understanding themselves as sort of selves at all. Yeah, it's a different version of what we discussed with the Malkorians. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They had just questioned their entire identity as a culture and species in the in the universe. Yeah, and because of a technological development because as opposed of to biological yeah. development. Yeah, this is the biological... I like when there's... Or trans-biological development, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I love it when those things come together because there's so many different ways of approaching these questions and they do they kind of they kind of filigree out a little differently you know i love when they just do technological but do it biological instead mm-hmm. in sci-fi and sure fantasy even. like i would be remiss if i didn't mention the awesome orchids from picard oh yes I would be betraying myself in the spirit of boothby 
Oh my god, that is one of my favorite things I've seen in years. They are amazing. I would grow space flowers. Okay, Dave, we've discussed how I might be a little nervous breaking mm -hmm. orbit with you at some point here. Yeah. If I can grow a spaceship flower, I will I will <laughs> I will ride that flower to space and I will see you there. Oh, or you can come with me. Wouldn't that be incredible? I wonder if that's where things like Tin Man didn't come from. Hmm. He's a sort of space seed or something, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, those those orchids were just, like, that was, I think, well, probably the third or fourth time I wept in that, watching that series. But when that happened, I was watching just like, that oh, episode. Oh, oh, this is just, this is just the best thing. Yeah. Uh, they were great. Yeah. That was a moment of really getting it. Because, you know, there's, everything is reached up from planets, from a big green hand in the original series yeah. to, um, mm -hmm. Uh, the weird weapons that came up on the uh, the weapons planet, you know, uh, Mora Four or whatever it's called, mm. the Merchant of Death, whatever the the episode name is, TNG episode. Mm. Okay. Um, the plant, the weapons that continuously upgrade themselves. Oh. Um, oh yeah. Oh right. Yeah. 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 You know these. There are things that just you know that kind of leap out at you, saying you know this is really, this is really like a trekky thing, mm -hmm. and those definitely were. They yeah. were really beautiful. That's the planet I want to visit to if I can. Capelia Station, eh? I, yeah, where they do their technology through gardening. That's oh, where yeah. I, that's where I want to go, develop my <laughs> skills some more. <laughs> like that's what I was trying to do when I was like twelve. I sent a message to the Canadian Space Agency. I forget what they were called at the time. They might not mm -hmm. even be called. They might have been tied in with Arrow or something. Still, yeah. at least in name. But I sent them a letter and asked them how I could be a space botanist. I was watching TNG at the time, and that's when I was first getting into it. And I just loved—I still love Keiko O'Brien. Oh, she yeah. gets a bad rap sometimes. I love Keiko, and I just want her job. She's a great character. Too. Oh, Keiko is like one of the realest characters. In the she whole is, and she's such a good actress. She just yeah. nails that character. I love it, and she like brooks no shit for Miles O'Brien. No, it's great. Love it, honey. I'm uh -huh. not a fish. <laughs> she's like, well, it's healthy. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you could use a little healthy, O'Brien. Exactly. <laughs> darts and pints at quarks. Yeah, no, oh, you know man. you're sneaking those darts off camera, O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah. Um, yeah, I would visit that planet and see what other technologies they develop through planting mm. a seed in the ground. Uh, yeah. I would like to see if our own technologies and you know developments in that field. Mm -hmm. See where that goes. Oh, what man, can we yeah. start to grow? Yeah. Just grow a photosynthetic spaceship, right? It'd be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well. Well, I think we could get to our review. Oh, yeah. Section of the yeah, show, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This fits in with biology really beautifully. Yeah, I think we kind of covered things pretty well for an initial biology episode. Maybe as, you know, more in details on specific things and that sort of stuff. But yeah, The Gorn Crisis. Yes, another comic book review. This was four for you, issues, dear listeners. two issues? What was it? It's a single trade is what I have it in. Okay. Hardcover trade. It's um, from uh, some time ago. Uh, it's not a new thing, so I guess we shouldn't feel too bad about spoilers, but we left it for the end mm -hmm. anyway. And it came out from Wildstorm Comics back in 2001. Wow. And it takes place during the Dominion War. Mm-hmm. It's funny how a lot of the comics and stuff, that seems to be a favorite oh, for yeah. writers to... Well, it was also during the heyday, too, so there was probably for a lot sure. of media being produced. There's, there's so... I mean, the war itself is clearly so huge. There's just... Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a lot of reaching. storytelling room there, mm -hmm. you know? 
the Enterprise is orbiting Gorn, the Gorn mm-hmm. homeworld. They're there for diplomatic reasons. They want to encourage the Gorn to help them in the battle for the Alpha Quadrant, essentially. Yeah. They need allies wherever they can find them. Like, yeah. You can talk to the Gorn, right, John Luke? Yeah. And they haven't heard from them in a while. No, uh, no. They haven't heard from them in a, pretty much since Kirk's day. Yeah. They took that loss badly. Yeah. Seem, it's seemingly as a culture, which comes up in this story. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing to note right from the beginning is that uh, Commander Riker is off the Enterprise for the moment. He's right. He's helping a bunch of Klingon outpost pioneers set up some defenses and get themselves set up as sort of a, a colony place. Begrudging pioneers, perhaps. They yes. are a group of Klingon warriors who've been shamed into now... Yes. Doing repairs during a war instead of fighting glorious battles. Yeah, they followed their bloodlust too quickly in one moment, a, a, a sort of false vision. Yes, the captain uh, thought he had a vision that a dream. battle they were going to fight was in fact going to be in a different location. and He would get there by himself and have all the glory for himself mm-hmm. and his crew. Yeah, He's didn't turn out that way. Said maybe too much blood wine. Yeah. Not a vision, you know. Um, they, they're similar. Well, my experiences with blood wine would bear that out. <laughs> um, you know, so they're they're looking. It only for, comes in the barrel full, full and you can't waste right. it. It goes off so quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're 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 looking for some way to reclaim their sense of being Klingon. I yeah. think, You know, um, just as there are some Gorn who oh, are looking yeah. to reclaim I, their I didn't sense of being Gorn. Draw that parallel, but uh, the very Black nice. It's a great story. Yeah. Would appear to have been a, a highly militant segment of Gorn society. Yeah, the Black Crest. Mm-hmm. Um, and they perpetrate a pretty, pretty foul treachery. Yeah, they're in stern opposition to the royal family mm-hmm. class of yep. Gorn society, which seems to be a long generational. Oh yeah, very hierarchical of, society. It's yeah, very ordered. Seems like that royal family's been ruling things since Kirk's day. At least since then. And yep. they haven't seen a lot of progress, the Black Crest, in their in their mind. No, and they feel that the Gorn are becoming weak. Yes, uh, lost their way. Like, they see themselves more as the Klingons do during and before the Dominion Wars, as an expansionist culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When they go somewhere, they're Gorn, they're Klingons. It's their destiny to take that world, or... Yeah, and they, they want to claim that heritage for themselves. Mm. Uh, in so doing... The weak must be conquered, they say. Yeah. As if that is a long-standing phrase of in their society. society. Yeah. yeah, the weak must uh, be conquered. And so they, they decide to do that. But they're and surrounded, they, and they're stuck in their their territory. Yes, <laughs> yeah. On one side by the Federation, on one side by the Klingons. Yeah. Behind they're them, stuck. who knows what's there, yeah. And not far... From the Romulans, not above too that far. No, even. no, nowhere to go. So these Black Crest Gorn massacre the government, the ruling council, yeah, essentially. The, the and moments dis- before the Enterprise away team uh, are to beam down and destroy the next generation of the ruling class, which is in an egg cache. Yes, and they stomp all the eggs. They destroy the next generation of the ruling council as well. So like, yeah, it's done. We've just. Destroyed it now and for the future. Yep. They mean to change Gorn society permanently. Now, there was one survivor of the massacre who mm-hmm. then calls Picard, who ha- wasn't down on the planet because the Gorn leadership wouldn't meet with them in person. Mm-hmm. Talk, we let you come and talk to us, but we're not going to stand there and talk to you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they had received essentially kind of silence for the most part from them. Yeah. They're finally invited down. They arrive to this scene of, yeah, bloody massacre it, and but, realize very quickly that the Black Crest are going to, are not very far away from this room. Mm-hmm. You know? And they're told by a dying Gorin that there is a secret egg cache that did survive. So there is a potential next generation of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, as the legitimate government, Picard would feel obligated to defend, as they tend to do with the legitimate ruling class, even if they don't agree with the p- politics or the situations on the planets. Yeah. It's like it's when they get sick of that, they'll change their world. And having been invited in, uh, that's a different scenario than a sort of prime directive question mm-hmm. here, right? This is a war flight capable species who are well, asking for diplomatic and The ruling council on the planet asks for assistance. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they get to work trying to figure out how to save this next generation of Gorn rulers mm-hmm. while the Black Crest launch every ship they've got. At Federation outposts. Cestus Three, which was the site of their earlier attack on Federation space. They appear to have the majority of the Gorn yes. space fleet. They appear to, yeah. And they're attacking there, and they're coming toward the outpost where uh, Riker is... Which is uh, just on the edge of Gorn space. Gaining the respect and the trust of the Klingons through Batleth fights. Yep, he's fighting uh, Klingon, who keeps mouthing off to the captain, who Riker has talked to quite a bit, and despite his own professed shame, Riker seems to quite like the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems a thoughtful leader. Thought he was doing right by his crew, was wrong... Now wants nothing more than to redeem himself. Precisely. And his crew. And so the... Yeah, the Gorn are on their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, mean harm to everyone nearby. And mm-hmm. at the same moment, Data, who's been left on the Enterprise to Command, receives I love a Data call. Command episodes slash stories. Oh, man. So good. We need Captains the Sutherland with a lot of my favorite Data moments. Oh, yeah. Thought that was wonderful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Picard just keeps hailing him and hailing yeah, Mr. him. Mr. Data. Hello. Miss, one minute, Captain. Oh, stand by. Stand I, by. He, Data's a great commander, and I love his quiet deliberation mm-hmm. when it comes to issues. And you, you get his thoughts. Uh, and he's really observed moment. Picard very carefully as a captain. There's a lovely moment in this where he remarks that. With him and Geordi. Yeah. Geordi's captain just, Picard would yeah. have thought of a way yeah. to kind of cut through this situation. Yes. He tells Jordy, he tells Jordy he's stuck in a situation where he has to choose between rescue the captain or attack the Gorn, essentially. Yeah, and help all those outposts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And Jordy just said, well, what would Captain Picard do? Captain Picard would, he says, Captain Picard would find a way to get an immediate ceasefire. He's like, he wouldn't choose either of those things. He nope. would find a ceasefire and end them both in one kind of fell swoop kind yes. of thing. Yes. Like, so I'm trying to figure out how to do that. I'm trying to do the Picard thing, Jordy. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm working on. Yeah, I'm working on the uh, Picard thing. And beautifully, at the moment where Picard and all of his crew are about to be executed by the leader of the yeah, Black Yeah, the Black Crest. Crest have stormed the mm-hmm. where the landing party was, stormed the castle throne room, I guess, yep. or council chambers or whatever it was. And uh-huh. yeah, they have a you know, a huge blade to Picard's neck and he's telling Data he's gonna, you know, kill Jean Luc right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Data has to make the decision and Data's just quietly staring and he's just like, Hmm, I think you're bluffing. Basically. He's just like calls mm-hmm. his bluff, essentially. 
He says, you say humans are weak. Oh, yeah. We're not a product oh, of yes. human ingenuity. That's what it is. He's like, that's you're right. weak, and that's why I'll kill your captain, and then mm-hmm. I'll come and get you. And he's just like, that's right. I see a fatal flaw and basically a lack of information yeah. in that summation of yours. Yeah. And he says, there's only one way to sort this out. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and he beams down to the planet. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, in being Picard, Data in that moment is also James Kirk. Yeah. Which is, I, I, oh man, I loved it. Even gets the cut on the front of his uniform and everything. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's and, true. And he, he, he defeats the leader of the yeah, Black Crest. Yeah, he's just like, as, if I'm weak, because they, they, it's a bit of a trick here. They don't know he's an android. They just think he's another, think the Gorns, mm-hmm. they're all the same. They're all just like humans or Vulcans humans all or whatever. Yeah, me. exactly. <laughs> so he's like, fine, I will challenge you then. And since I'm weak, the Federation is weak. Mm-hmm. He's just, because in his mind, he's just like, I don't know if he thought this or says it to the Gorn. He's just like, the situation you see in your society in compared to ours is because yeah. of our strengths. Mm-hmm. They may not be what you see as strength, but the strength of the Federation is why you we're doing a little bit better than you are right now. Right. He's just like, so maybe you should not have such a basic view of strength and see how you're wrong here because I'm about to make a fool of you. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a data's... Yeah, and, and and Dana very handily mm-hmm. uh, puts him on the ground. Yep, which uh, forces an immediate ceasefire. He yep. recognizes that he's been bested in combat, mm-hmm. uh, and um, they relinquish control of uh, Gorn society. Yep, um, and Riker gets to have a cool fight with the Klingons. Also true. They fight the uh, Gorn invasion force on that outpost. Mm-hmm. He earns the respect of. Uh, the Gorn are the Klingons are able to be warriors mm-hmm. once more. Yeah, the captain sacrifices himself to save mm-hmm. them. So he got a glorious death. Stovokor. Cor awaits. Indeed. So yeah, I thought it was a really tight story. Written uh, by Kevin J. Anderson and Rebecca Moesta. And painted, as it's all painting. Oh, beautiful art. By yeah. Igor Corday. Yeah, I thought they captured Data's features particularly well. Mm-hmm. They made it a pleasure to, to look through. It was oh, absolutely. Pretty gorgeous. Yeah, it was a really lovely work. And would honestly have made a very interesting episode of TNG. Yeah, uh, yeah. which much like the last review oh, we yeah. did, it's like we're finding some stories that would have been great episodes and would have given us a glimpse into the Gorn that we never got to see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Gorn are a fascinating species, mm-hmm. you know. Just being stuck there. They're just there, stuck between the Klingons and the Federation and the, being the kind of species they are. It's <laughs> yeah. This moment was eventually going to come in some form. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, they were going to try another crack at it, you know. Mm. Because the Gorn themselves, being literally kind of hot uh, hot climate creatures, mm-hmm. they are very interested in sort of claiming a thing and holding it, it seems. Yeah, I can see Gorn's really loving Vulcan. It's just so hot. There are rocks everywhere. I can lie down and just, oh, it'd be great. But, yeah, that sense of strength, which was never really resolved in the original episode, which Kirk essentially sort of comments on, right? That this contest of strength isn't going to solve anything, Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, he's right. It's just postponed things. Mm -hmm. On a sour note as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, certainly for the Gorn. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do love that sort of full circle sense that, you know, what, what started as a fist fight, neither of them really wanted, yeah. ends up essentially in a, in a ritual combat that is really appropriately gorn that they can both choose, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and Data is very Starfleet in choosing, let's do it your way, mm-hmm. you know. 
Plus, I'm going to win this. (laughs) (laughs) He he may well have calculated the tensile strength of that Gorn's arm already. (laughs) I think so, yeah. He's like, I'm pretty sure I can do this. So, Uh, Dave, recommend or yay or nay? Oh, I I I would give this three Edoan thumbs up. Wow, that's pretty good. Indeed. That's all of their thumbs. I know. It's more thumbs than I have. Good, good. I agree. Three Edoan thumbs. Three Edoan thumbs. Yeah. All right. Good, good story. It was nice yeah. to see some more development of the Gorn. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it, it was, was great. Um, buff Riker. Oh, very, very Buff Riker. Riker was working out. Oh man, with those Klingons. Those Klingons put him through his paces. He did. Um, so I guess this episode sort of come full circle. I think so. We've uh, you know, uh, we've taken a look at, uh, at at body plans and body styles and the life that emanates from them. And as spring uh, approaches, we can all plant our space seeds. Indeed, and hope for orchids and transmission. Should we even be here? Well, look, how can we practice for Vix if we don't practice at Vix? I'm in atmosphere and all. I see what you're saying. Yes. So it's fake it till you make it, right? Practice for the gig at hand, yeah. Right, all right. Well, okay. it's all right. You said you had something you were working yeah, on, Yeah, those eh? chords I sent you. Yeah, uh, all right. Let's, let's try it. So we're from C minor. Here we go. C minor, yeah. One, two, a one, two, three. That promenade, yeah, we're gonna rock that promenade. Be the top of that promenade, looking for a star drifter, not a shape shifter. Lots to do and more to see. Sweet sticks from a dumb to tree, oh, oddities, opportunities, free advice, but not for cheap. Oh, gambling wheels, shaded deals, leave me back here tomorrow, Of that promenade, looking for a star drifter, not a shapeshifter. Be anything you want to be, a boat sailor on a star at sea, warrior or ambassador, an enigma or a mystery. Oh, just two more breach of warp core, and a sorry and brand in Ha, 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 ha.